So I'm going to talk about the value of learning to call BS. Can we do that? You know, like there's a game, right? Isn't there a game? Like you lie, you call BS, right? So have you ever like needed to call BS on somebody? Just like, that's not true. It's just not true, right? And it's interesting. Do you have, better yet, do you have people in your life who will call that on you? Like they'll just call BS when you're just, you're just way off. You're making up stuff, you know, you're just full of crap, right? So they call it, right? Which stands for bad smells, bad smells, um, in case your parents ask. So um, I want to call BS on some things tonight. And I, so this is like a missions night. They asked me to come and speak uh, to talk about missions, but I'm going to call BS on some things because, I, so here's the deal. I kind of made the title up this morning. A guy came up to me because I'm so mad. I want to hear the message tonight and, I, and, I'm, and I'm not in the right age group. And so the title is something I've been doing for over 30 years that helps me get my head straight every year. I do at least once a year and I may have missed a year, but I don't think I have. And I'm going to tell you about that. And because what it is, is this giant BS on my life. I just, when I do this, it calls BS on my life. And, and we need that on a regular basis because we get full of ourselves, right? We just get full of our stuff. We get full of our ideas. We get full of our problems. We just get full of stuff. And we need to get out of our stuff, realize that it is stuff, call it stuff, and get on with our lives, right? You with me so far? Is that it? It's going to get better. Hang in there. So here we go. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I want to do that. I want to talk about that today because I, I, I think that's an important thing. And it actually does tie in to the missions thing. And so there is this, uh, there is, yeah. So I met a guy today. I met a guy. Uh, this, this mother comes um, up to me and um, crying, really distraught. And um, said, would you come pray with our family? It was after one of the services. I said, sure, absolutely. I walk over and uh, mom and dad both crying. Um, a woman, a uh, young woman, probably under 30. Um, and a guy under 30. And I could tell he's the guy. He's the one. He's the situation. So I walk up to him and I said, what's up? He says, mm-hmm. And I said, well, wh- what's going on? Why are you here? I said, no, really, you know. I could tell you know. What's going on? Well, I have a court date on Tuesday. Okay, what's, what are the charges? Well, drugs. Okay, all right. You an addict? Yeah. What are you addicted to? Heroin. Okay. Uh, do, you, do you like being addicted to heroin? No, no, not really. How long have you been addicted? 15 years. This guy's under 30. And, um, okay, you want to change? Yeah. Tell me the worst, but I could tell he wasn't sure he wanted to change. He didn't want to go to jail, um, but he'd done that before too, so it probably wasn't going to be a new thing for him. And uh, I said, what's the worst thing about being addicted to heroin? He said, well, being out of control. And I said, no, that's not the worst thing. The worst thing is what's happening to the potential God gave you and what you're doing to these people. And I said, who is this? I looked at the woman. I said, I'm his wife. I said, you an addict as well? She said, I used to be. I said, how long have you been sober? She said, a year. I said, congratulations. She smiled. Very, I could tell she was excited about that, but very in pain about her husband. And uh, I said, no, the problem is that um, you're wasting a life that God gave you, and you're killing these people. There's a better way, but you got to want it. And I brought up Moy, our CR guy, and introduced him, and I had a prayer for him. And all I prayed for was that God would give him the courage to want what was best and the tenacity to follow through on it. 
I want to talk about wanting what is best. Maybe there's a heroin addict in here today. Maybe there's a meth addict. I can't tell you how many families have come to me in the last three weeks whose children are your age who are addicts. I am, I am, and these aren't, these aren't, these are people who live in this neighborhood, who live in Rossmore, who live across the street, who live here. And their kids, one of them said, my kid is on the street somewhere around here. I haven't seen him. I don't know where he's at. He's so strung out. And this guy's heartbroken. And so I want to, I want to talk to you about wanting what is best and not just buying into stuff. Because it hasn't changed since the garden. Satan lied to Adam and Eve and he'll lie to you about what's important. And he'll lie to you about what the outcomes of your life will be if you follow a certain direction. And we need to get it straight and we need to get it right. And there's no time to be kind of playing around with it. And so I want to talk to you about that. And I'm going to pick the weirdest passage to do that. But it kind of ties in uh, to to everything I want to talk about. And so it's found, it's it's this parable. And it's found in Luke chapter 10, okay? Uh, Actually, I think they're going to put it up on the screen for us. And uh, and so we'll just begin with the first part of it. Uh, In Luke 10, verse 25. I'm not going to turn around all night. Um, so <laughs> I'll start with verse 25, and they can keep up. Uh, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in verse 26, uh, t- six, Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Now, what's an interesting thing is he doesn't say you're right. Uh, you're right that you can have eternal life because it starts off right off the bat with a, a wrong assumption. He starts off in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law, which means like he was a rule keeper guy. He was a religious lawyer. I know it sounds like an oxymoron, and it was. Um, anybody here studying to be a lawyer? Any attorneys in the room? Well, then that's just no fun. All right, so... Um, and he says, what must I do? So he is buying into a lie right off the bat that you can figure your own life out. The problem with the kid this morning, the problem with the families I've been talking to lately is every one of these kids thinks they've got it figured out. Every one of them, I got it figured out. I can handle this. I know what's best. Wrong. This guy started with a wrong premise, okay? Jesus doesn't affirm his premise. He just says, oh, since you're an expert in rule keeping, then what, is it, what does it say? What do you think it means? And so he goes on. Um, What's written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you've answered correctly, according to scripture, that's, that's right. Um, do this and, and you will live. And so it's kind of the, the end of the conversation, except it's not. Because this guy goes on and he wants to talk about something else. Right, he wants to kind of clarify a little more. So he says this, um, Uh, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So right off the bat, Jesus, I don't know if you understand this, but it's important to call BS on people and BS on yourself. It's called self-awareness. And Jesus calls BS on this guy. He does. He says, uh, so, okay, good. You got it all figured out. But this guy, being an attorney, being a, 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 an expert rule keeper, he knows that loving God and loving your neighbor is really big. And so he was going to do what religious leaders who are full of themselves always do. He's going to define it. So who is my neighbor? So he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? So what he's trying to do, everybody knows you can't love everybody all the time. Everybody knows you can't keep all the rules all the time everywhere. It's not possible. That's why the law existed. But this guy's wanting to get it down to a manageable kind of thing. He wants a manageable religion. 
One that he can pull off in his own strength and his own understanding and make this thing work. Just like we want to do with our lives. I can figure this out. I can make it happen. I can make it work. And it's just not true. And so here is this guy. He starts off with the wrong premise. And Jesus calls BS on his religion, on his piety. He said, no. So here's what's about to happen. So he opens the door. He says, well, who's my neighbor? What he's hoping Jesus will say, well, it's the guy's three doors down from you on either side. <laughs> or it's only the Jews who really keep the rules like you do. That's your neighbor. He's hoping Jesus is going to define this really, really small. And Jesus just blows him up. He just calls BS on his whole mindset, his whole worldview. And he, and he goes after him. And I love what he does. So listen to this. He starts off with this. Um, so he starts off, have you heard the one about the priest and, and the rabbi walking on the, it's in essence what he says. You don't know this parable? It's called the Good Samaritan, right? Okay. So he says, um, so who's my neighbor? So this guy's hoping he'll define it, make it manageable, something he can pull off. And here's what Jesus says. He says, um, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, uh, which is about 17 miles, by the way. It's just downhill. Jerusalem is up. It's, um, it's a place of worship. And that's why the religious guys were heading down in a minute. And in this parable, he is just telling what really happened. The priest would go down toward the Jordan River, which is where Jericho is. And so, uh, and it's a very windy road, even today. You can't really go there now because it's a kind of a war zone. Um, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, by the way, just a little heads up on this one, Jews hate Samaritans. Hate Samaritans, okay? Because they had perverted the faith. They'd intermarried with other religions. They were just, they believed all kinds of crazy stuff. And the Jews were very proud of their religion, okay? So they hated the Samaritans. So that Jesus would make up a story where the Samaritan who was a hero was just an insult to this guy. But he was trying to get this guy's attention, okay? And, and uh, as he traveled, he came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for an extra, any extra expense you may have. Which of these three, so Jesus now says to this, this expert in keeping the rules, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now I want to break this down for you. And just all the things that, that Jesus calls him out on. All right, so the first one is, he's trying to justify himself at the very beginning. Um, and, and Jesus says, kind of says to him, this is baloney. This is not keeping the faith. Because this guy's attitude is, what is the least I can do? What is the very least I can do and still get into the kingdom? Like, how narrowly can I define being a good guy? How narrowly can I define who my neighbor is? And Jesus just blows it out of the water. And, and he just, um, just said, no, that you're missing the whole point. I remember one time I was on, a, on a, a, a trip in Africa. I have for the last probably close to 35 years, certainly more than 30, I think. I may have missed one, but I don't think so. Have traveled internationally to a third world country. Because I need someone to call BS on my stuff. Because I begin to think that this where we live is the real world. This is not the real world, people. 
This is a rare moment in history where we're living in the most prosperous, successful nation in the history of the world, where we are spoiled rotten and living in comfort never known before, and we begin to buy into it and think that this is the real world and we deserve it. And going to a country somewhere else, we're reminded that we are hogging everything and that we're responsible for a lot more than our own happiness and comfort and that we should be making a difference in the world. And I need that because I get caught up in my stuff. One of my first trips to Africa, we, uh, my son Cody and I were invited to go up to the war area up in northern Uganda. And at the time, a guy named Joseph Kony was um, capturing children and turning them into child soldiers. And um, we flew up in a plane. I guess that's probably the only way you could fly up, probably. <laughs> But I'm thinking about the little plane. It was a prop plane. And I'm thinking about that there was guns going off in, in the area they told us uh, before we got there and realizing how stupid that was. But um, we arrived there and we began to meet with child soldiers who had been recaptured, brought back. And we spent a day, Cody actually filmed it. And if you, uh, if you remember, it was it Not Forgotten Children. It was, what was the movie? Some college, what was it? Invisible Children, is that what it was? Uh, uh, that, that They made a movie about it. some college students. Said, so we met with kids who had been recaptured. And in, in this town of Gulu at that time, you probably have heard the story, because these marauders would come and capture children, make them shoot their own parents, uh, or worse, then make them child soldiers, they, all the children in the outlying areas would come into town at night to sleep under the protection of the army there. And, um, and then we'd go out back to their farms. And there was IDP camps there, the worst place I've ever seen in my life. And as we sat there and we um, listened to the stories about children having to murder their own parents and siblings, one girl, it sticks in my mind, she was a beautiful girl, maybe 16 or 18, a pretty tall girl because in that region, they're kind of tall and and very, very dark, and beautiful round face. And none of the children would look at us, and none of the children would smile, and they just seemed to be in a daze, and they would talk almost in monotone. And she told us of not only being abused physically and sexually, and, but the story that I remember the most was that the the rebel army was so, and, and they were just thieves. They weren't even an army. It was just thieves, a terrible guy, Coney, who's still alive, by the way. And they would be so poor that they would make these women become their wives and all that goes with that, including uh, the very least offensive of which was cooking. But when the army would approach them in their camp, they would run, but they would make the women pick up the boiling pots and put them on their head. No, no protection, nothing, and run because the food was so valuable to them. And I remember her describing to me that it was terribly painful and burned her scalp. But the worst part was later when the infection set in and maggots began to, to hatch. And you're going, well, that's just gross. You don't need to tell us that. That's one story out of hundreds that I heard while I was there. I have to be honest with you. I'm, I'm a pastor. I've been a Christian a really long time. I believe what God says about himself. 
I believe that Christ is the hope of the world. I believe that. But on that day, God called BS on my religion. Because I got back to the airport to get on that little plane. And I wanted to do two things. I wanted to throw up and I wanted to run away. I wanted to get back to Europe or the United States or someplace that felt normal to me and forget what I had just seen because it was so overwhelming and it was so disgusting. And, and my God, that I thought I believed in, I wasn't sure he could handle that. And an amazing thing happened to me at the airport. Just as we're getting on this little puddle jumper plane, a local pastor from Ingulu town came to us and he said through the interpreter, he said, if you will help us, um, we will rescue these children. We will train them with jobs. We will reintegrate them into society. We will help them find Jesus and find healing for the terrible things they've done, they've been forced to do, and the memories. And as I got on the plane, I still wanted to throw up. I still wanted to run away. I was still in shock for weeks. But in that moment, it was like God said to me, your faith isn't very big, is it? You think I don't know what's going on there? You think I'm not heartbroken? You think I don't have people prepared to rush in and care for those children? Now you do your part. I came home, we raised about a half a million dollars. The next year I went back. That same girl looked me in the eye, smiled, didn't want to tell her story anymore because that's not who she is anymore. She'd been trained. She has a job. She has a career. She has a life. One of the things they did, they began to play with them because these kids had been captured when they were children and hadn't been allowed to play. And they learned to play and they learned to laugh and they learned to live again. God had people in place ready to do that. But I didn't believe enough. And God called BS on my wimpy little faith and said, I got something bigger going on here. Trust me. When we get out of kind of our what we think is normal and we see what the world really looks like, God says, I am bigger than what you think. I am bigger than what you can figure out. I am bigger than what you can manipulate or even manage. I am bigger. And yes, the problems of the world are bigger too. But God is there and he is ready. First thing he did was he just called this guy on his religion and his piety. So that's baloney. That's not true. The second thing he did, we find it. We find it. In, so let me let me just make the application there. What he's trying to get this guy to do is wake up and get beyond his own stuff. Because this guy's religion was all about this guy. What must I do to inherit eternal life? There is nothing you can do. Remember, Christ is going to the cross. He's going to do it. And he's trying to help this guy to wake up. There's nothing you can do to make your life what it's supposed to be. You must trust God and cooperate with Him. For me, getting out of my environment reminds me every year, every time, that it's about something bigger than me. It's about something beyond what I can maneuver and manipulate and make happen. So a priest and a Levite were walking down the road. Their religion was messed up. That's why he told the story that way. He was trying to help this young man see the religious leaders don't get it either. It's not about keeping the rules. It's about knowing God and trusting God and having faith in him. He also called him on his lack of compassion. The first thing he says about the Samaritan, the good Samaritan was an oxymoron to the Jews. The first thing he says to the good Samaritan is, and he felt pity for him. What he was saying was that this Jewish rule keeper 
had no heart. He had no heart. What he was saying is, dude, you're about keeping the rules, but you don't have any compassion. There's no heart in this thing for you. I think the message to us is, you got to open your heart. You got to risk. One of the great things I love about caring, whether it's going to a third world country or going down to Project 54 or even caring for one of the kids at Royal Family Kids Camp, is that you're going to get hurt. It's going to break your heart. God will do that. He will break your heart. I'm, I'm just warning you. He will break your heart so that he can make it new. You got it all calloused. You know, you got it all calcified. You got it all protected. God's going to break it down. So there's this little girl in Guatemala. If you go on the Guatemala trip, you'll see her. Uh, what's her name? Estelita. Estelita. I just lost it. Estelita. That's, getting old is not fun. Um, so Estelita, when we first met Estelita on one of our first trips, anybody remember Estelita that has been to Guatemala? Anybody here? Been? Yeah, you remember her? So the first time we met Estelita, they had just rescued her. And little Estelita couldn't even, she was so weak. She was not that young. She was maybe four, I think, or something like that. She was so weak and so malnutritioned uh, that she couldn't hold her head up. She, just, she would just lay there. And they thought she was deaf because she made no sounds whatsoever. And, and so we, we, our, our team loved on her and cared for her and our family just fell in love with her. And, and, and so every time I go back, I go check on Estelita and I can usually remember her name. And, and so I go back and this last time I was there last year, uh, about a year ago now. And I went and I asked for Estelita and the, the, the leader, Carlos, who runs the ministry we work with in, in, um, in Guatemala, they rescue children and they, they, amazing stuff. Goes and finds her, gets her out of class. And her principal from her school, they have a school on site, comes out. And, and, and she comes over and she kind of looks at me and, and she's walking perfectly fine. She's completely healthy. And uh, I said uh, quietly, um, does she speak? And so, oh, yeah, she can talk fine. Said, really? When did this happen? Oh, just last year or so she started talking. Well, is she, and I know how to say this, I don't know how it words, but is she okay? I mean, is she up to speed with the rest of the kids? Oh, no, she's very, very bright. She's the brightest kid in her class. She's a little spoiled and she'll take advantage of it because she knows she's cute. <laughs> but she's very, very bright. And the first time, I remember the first time we left, there was a guy on the trip, and I can't remember, I think he was a fireman, if I remember right. He's a big old muscle guy. And when he had to let go of the baby, so they rescue babies. And if you go to Guatemala, you get to hold them and you get to love on them because they need that connection. When he, when he left, he started crying. It was, it was great. I wish I'd had it on film. Um, this big old guy crying because he had to get the baby up and let go of Estelita. It will break your heart. It'll break your heart so that God can do something bigger. That's a part of what happens. You're to care for something beyond yourself. And what Jesus was saying to this guy is, if you learn to care for something more than yourself, God will do amazing things in you. But you got to open your heart. you got to risk it. It might get broken. It will get broken. And yet God will replace that brokenness with something so powerful. There's three things that he talks about with the, with the Samaritan. Is he took pity. He allowed his heart to be broken. He took action. It cost him. It cost, and it didn't just cost him money when he put him in the inn. Do you think the guys who beat this guy up and robbed him were gone by then? <laughs> Do you think in this story they weren't hanging out looking for other rich guys? 
He, he took a risk. He took a physical risk. He had to get outside his comfort zone. I love that. And because you have to find something greater than yourself to live for. If all you do is live for yourself, you're... So I, the first time I was invited to a 12-step meeting, um, I knew everybody was going to go around the room and go, hi, I'm Bob, and I'm an alcoholic, or I'm, I'm Sue, and you know, I'm a drug and I And I thought, when they come to me, I want to be honest. And the, the, the answer I came up with is, hi, I'm Doyle, and I'm addicted to me. See, that's where all my problems come from. They're not other people causing me grief. They're not the economy. They're me. Matter of fact, the Bible says that most of your problems come from the wars within you. I'm addicted to me. And until I begin to live for something greater than me, me is going to keep getting in the way. And when I begin to live for God and for the plans he has for me, I can, I can deal with me with his help. I can keep me in check. I can call BS on me when I need to. And I need to a lot. Okay? And so this guy took action and he took responsibility. Not only paid for his, he said, whatever it takes. In Guatemala, I think, um, I think I, God called BS on, on my commitment. I, that, that's the lead is a cute little girl, and that's a happy story. If you go to Guatemala, you'll meet a guy named Carlos, who is a little older than I am. He's given came to America from Guatemala, made a lot of money, and has used all of it to build this campus to care for people. And you will undoubtedly, if you're there, go to the place that Americans have built for um, children with special needs. Many of them severe, severe. And I remember <laughs> the first time there, and there's also um, a center for the elderly who are uncared for and otherwise be on the streets. And I remember the first time I went there and I saw the severely challenged kids. And I, I asked the most naive question. It, after it came out of my mouth and he responded, I just went, what an idiot. I said, what's going to happen to these kids? He looked at me like, what do you mean? I said, Carlos, what is long term, what is going to happen to these kids? Oh, these are my children. I've adopted them. They're mine. The rest of their lives, they're my children. And all of a sudden, my puny little commitment to do a few things for God just looked like what it was. It was just so wimpy. Just so wimpy. Here is a guy that will be caring for children for years to come, who can never say thank you, who can, many of them can never utter a word, take a step, smile, eat for themselves. And yet, oh, those are my kids. I've adopted them. You see, God calls BS on a little... So it's interesting because generations aren't that different. I'll tell you a little bit about your parents. If your parents are boomers, they may be Gen Xers and that's a whole different deal. It's just a bunch of whiners. But you can tell them I said that. Um, boomers had the Vietnam War and we were going to change the world. We were going to stop the war. We were going to spread love and peace and we were going to change the world. Fifteen years later, there were a bunch of yuppies driving BMW trying to make money any way they could. If it, even if it included ripping off people less fortunate than you. See, we all talk a big game. Millennials, there is a while there where millennials are, we're going to social justice and we're going to march. BS. You're not doing squat. You're going to sit on your mom's couch and talk about it. Did I get your attention? Because you're no different than the rest of us unless you begin to live for someone, something bigger than you. 
and you make a commitment to do it and you do it for the rest of your life, then you might make a difference. Then you might do something that, that honors God and that is worthy of who he created you to be. But you got to make a choice. You got to get serious about it. You got to get beyond the talking part and you got to take the action like the Samaritan did. He took responsibility for that guy. In essence, he said to the innkeeper, get this guy well, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes, I will pay for it. I was reading, what time do I need to be done by? I don't know. Can you guys just kind of tell me to shut up when we're done? Um, oh, good. I got two more hours. Um, so there's this guy named Adoniram Judson. You guys ever hear of him? He was the first American missionary. He went to Myanmar. And he was raised by a minister. And he went to school. And um, a guy talked him out of his faith. He began to say, oh, it's absurd. It's, it's crazy. It's dumb. It's all this stuff. Oh, you're going to tell me now when the mic's going off? Is that what it is? <laughs> so uh, I've been reading about this guy. And, and this guy had this conversion experience. He got out of college and he wanted to go be a playwright and do stuff that he liked. And, and he doubted his faith. And then one night he was traveling. You guys, you guys know this story? It happened in the early 1800s. One night he was traveling and he stopped in to spend the night. He had graduated from college, gone to New York to be a playwright, etc. And the innkeeper said, we have a room, but I got to warn you, there's a guy very ill in the room next to you. And so if there's people coming and going, I apologize, he's very sick. Judson um, makes it through the night, but there's a lot of noise up to a point. People coming and going, the guy's moaning and all kinds of stuff, and then it just goes quiet. So he gets a fairly good night's sleep, and the next day he gets up and he... He checks out, if you will, and, and he says at the, to the innkeeper, says, by the way, um, what happened to the guy? He got quiet. He said, oh, he died. So, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Do you happen to know his name? He said, yeah, he was a young man, just graduated from college, and he said his name, and it was the same guy who talked him out of his faith. His college friend had died in the room next to him. The guy who told him there was no God, that there was no person to believe in. There was no Christ. There was no reason. And he said in his, in his memoirs, he sat down for hours in that inn. He couldn't move. He was frozen. What if my friend was wrong? My friend just died an agonizing death in the room next to me. I heard it. I didn't know who it was. But what if he was wrong? What if there is a God? If there's not a God, his life had no meaning and bad luck. But if there is a God, he just wasted his entire life. And in that, in that moment, he began to realize that there is a God and there is a purpose to his life and that God expects more from us than just our own comfort and ease and what we can figure out. God has something greater. He later fully committed his life to Christ and became the first missionary of the United States. I, I brought with me uh, uh, just a little uh, piece. He found a girl that he fell in love with and he wanted to marry her, so he had to write her dad. And I just thought this would be interesting because I want you to understand the mindset we live with, with the mindset that someone who truly understands what faith is about would live with. Here's what he writes. I have now to ask whether you can consent to, you, to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. He knew he was going to be a missionary and he wanted to go with him. Um, whether you consent to her departure and her, subject, her subjection to the hardships and suffering of missionary life 
Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory, with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heaven, or heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. What dad wouldn't jump at that? That's crazy. Doesn't that sound crazy to you? That you would ask for a man for his daughter's hand in marriage and say, I'm going to take her away to a faraway land where she'll probably die an awful death. That's just great. Who could say no to that? And yet, as absurd as it sounds, that's how the gospel has been spread all of these hundreds of years by people who so understood what it was about, who didn't buy into the society, the culture, the comfort of which they lived. They understood they were created for more. Now, not every one of us is called to go to some dark, awful place. Some of us are called to stay and be a light and a beacon here where it doesn't seem as dark, and yet I think it is. And a part of what Christ was trying to say to this young man is it's not about keeping the rules. It's about so much more. It's about so much bigger. Let me just finish up. Um, and this guy had a wrong concept or understanding of love. Um, Jesus says to him, notice in, in, in verse um, 29, he had said, who is my neighbor? But in verse 36, Jesus said, um, which one was a neighbor to this man? He changes the question. It's not who is my neighbor. It's which one will I be a neighbor to? Which, it's a very different question. One is what's the least I can do. The other is how many opportunities will you give me to love someone else? How many doors will you open that I can care for somebody else? You see, love is not determined by its objects. It's determined by the one who is giving the love. The extent and the character of the love given is up to you. And it's up to me. And it might shock you. So... If the first one is wake up and the second one is open your heart, this one is stretch your mind. Who might God want you to love? One of my favorite things to do is go into gas stations. Not because I like the smell or the food, because I like the people there, because they're usually Indian or Middle Eastern. And the first thing I say is, where are you from? And they say, New Jersey. And I say, okay, before that, because they're about to be offended that I asked that. And usually when they say where they're from, I have either been there or I know something about it. And I'm able to say to them, oh, India, I love India. That's one of my favorite places in the world. Which part are you from? And they're the one. The first time I went to India, I do love India, by the way. The first time I went to India, I never dreamed that God would open so many doors for me to have significant spiritual conversations with people in gas stations just because I've been to India. I'm telling you, it works every time. And I, I end up, so now, now would you be a Sikh, which you can tell, or would you be a Hindu, or, or where are you from? Where are you? And oh, oh cool. I'm a Christian. Let's go. And I just start this conversation, and you never know who God might open a door for you to love. You've got to stretch your mind. God's got some things planned for you that you can never see coming until you get out of your comfort zone, and you begin to let him use you. And the last thing that, that happens in this, in this interaction here, is that Jesus says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Get up, two words, go and do. 
So whether it's signing up to go to Guatemala or it's going to Project 54 on Skid Row or it's going across the street to help a single mom that's struggling, get up and do something and see what Jesus was talking about. The point of this guy wasn't to correct his theology. It was to change his heart, to change his future. The point of relationship with Christ isn't so you can know the right stuff. It's so you can be the right person and do the right stuff, which is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself which is exactly what he said. Who's your neighbor? Anybody you choose to love. Anybody that's in front of you that needs love, that's your neighbor. The question is, will you do it? Will you get up and go love your neighbor? So, it's a tough one for all of us. This isn't any easier for me than it is you. So I'm going to tell you a story that you can't repeat. Is that okay? I'm serious. I have a neighbor who's an old man. He is, says he's Native American, and he believes in the old ways, which is his excuse for not talking about spiritual things. And over the 25 years I've lived there, more I guess, I have shared my faith with him many times. And I've prayed for him so many times. I have, um, I have another neighbor who uh, uh, moved in across the street from me. One day I'm up putting up the lights and this neighbor who is not living with his wife, he's living with someone else's wife, said, hey, great sermon yesterday. I said, what? He goes, yeah, I was there. Me and, and he pointed to his non-wife and, and said, great sermon. And I'm like, yeah, I was there. Oh, Okay. Well, we should talk about it sometime. And I went to the house and I had the weirdest thoughts. I, I actually thought this. God didn't strike me dead and I'm so glad. I said, God, I was praying for the other guy. I don't like this guy. <laughs> he stole somebody else's wife. I don't like him. And God says, oh, so now you get to determine who you're going to love? You get to determine who it is that I'm going to use you to reach? You get to, you get to determine that? Again, God called BS on my stuff, didn't he? That friend still comes here. He's still living with somebody else's wife. I still, I like him a little better now. Not much. Here's the deal. God has plans. Now, I, I told you you can't repeat that story, right? Do not repeat that story. My friend, one friend would get upset and the other one would too. Here's the deal. God has plans for you that you can't imagine. You can't even fathom. But you got to get out of your stuff. And you get on board with his plan, with his calling, with his definition of what a good life looks like. And you may need to get out of your comfort zone physically. Go somewhere else and do that. And realize that so much of what you're caught up in is not important. Just like I have to do that. And see what God might do. And I challenge you to get out of your stuff and let him speak to you. Okay? Let's pray. Lord God, I, I pray that I have not been too harsh and too obnoxious. Uh, but I have shared my heart, Lord, and that is how you speak to me. You call me on my stuff on a regular basis. You call me when I'm being selfish. You call me when I'm full of my stuff or when I think I'm really all together or when I'm feeling sorry for myself. Lord, you, you call me on it, and I'm so glad. Lord, I thank you for those times where I have traveled to places, whether it's India or Guatemala or Africa, and you have spoken clearly to my heart 
that there are more important things, there are more powerful things that need to happen in this world than whatever little piddly thing I'm worried about. Lord, raise our aspirations, raise our awareness of and honoring of you, and Lord, raise us up to be the kind of people who bring the kind of hope that this world so desperately needs. I ask this in Jesus' name.